You're listening to Gist It Between the Lines, where we have real discussions about real issues in public safety. We hope you have enjoyed our podcast so far, and we appreciate you listening. In today's episode, episode four, we're joined by some fire service professionals to talk about fire prevention and what your agencies can do for Fire Prevention Month. I'm Megan with Gypstick, and we're here today with the president of the Educators Association, Laura Coleman. She's also with Lumpkin County Emergency Services, and we also have Jacade Long from Rockdale County Fire Rescue joining us as well. Thank you all for joining us. I'm really glad that you all were able to come today. Thank you for inviting us. Yes, thanks for having us here. And we're here today to talk about fire prevention and what your department can do for Fire Prevention Month. So Fire Prevention Month actually came from the Great Chicago Fire back in 1871. With that, the National Fire Protection Association actually came and said that we're actually going to start commemorating the Great Chicago Fire by looking at fire prevention and focusing especially on the week that has October 9th in it from the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. That Great Chicago Fire actually killed 250 people, left 10,000 homeless, burned over 2,000 acres, and actually 17,400 structures as well. So it was a huge fire. And they just actually wanted to commemorate that by actually talking about fire prevention during that week. So the theme for this year's Fire Prevention Week is not everyone wears a cape, plan and practice your escape. So is that one of the biggest fires that we've experienced? Is that why we commemorate it? It is one of the the biggest and one of the most well-known. Everyone always thinks that Mrs. O'Leary's cow started it. They still say may have been a couple of boys smoking in a barn that actually started it, but it could also have been Mrs. O'Leary's cow that knocked over the candle. Okay. They actually said that people were trying to seek refuge out away on the water, and the heat was so intense that they couldn't even shelter themselves from it. Oh, even near the water. Even on the water. Wow. And about that same time, there were some larger fires that were actually in more rural areas, but because they didn't affect as many folks, that they more focus on the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. During that time, do you think that they had any fire escape plans, like their home fire escape plan? They focused some on it only because of the fact of fire affected them a whole lot more than they than it does right now. With the fires for them, though, they didn't really have the protection side. For them, it was, you know, it just destroyed everything and there wasn't really a stop to it. You're talking about over three square miles of property that burned. That's an enormous amount of oh, real absolutely. estate. Is that something that we're concerned about nowadays that happens now, too? Or are we further away from that now? Well, nowadays, actually, you have as little as two minutes to actually escape a home fire once the smoke alarm sounds. So that's why we're teaching people, especially this month, to push the fact that get them to practice their fire escape plan. And this isn't just when everyone's awake. Actually, try to do it at night because a lot of people think, oh, my kids will wake up to the smoke alarms and they don't normally wake up to a regular alarm, so they won't wake up to a smoke alarm. But it's a matter of actually getting them used to the sound, having everyone know what that sound is, and practicing having two ways out. And then once they're out, having them actually stay out. And do you have a particular meetup plan that you would suggest for children in these situations? Yeah, actually, we teach through fire safety programming how to get out of the house, like Laura just mentioned, two ways out, Mm -hmm. Uh, what to do in the event that you can't get out, like the close the door program. But most importantly, as Laura pointed out, we teach that once you're out, stay out and choose a safe designated area to meet. And that area would obviously be out of the street, away from incoming engines, fire engines. It 
may be in a neighbor's driveway. It may be a designated tree. It could be a mailbox. It could be any host of areas in proximity to the house that puts you at a safe distance away from the fire. So as fire safety educators, do you go around and you help children understand that or you tell the families? How do you make sure that information gets spread? So we do um, do them with our children, but I'm going to also stress, especially as fire service personnel, how many of us do it with our own kids? Right. I mean, and that is huge. So we set the example. My kids, we actually had the house full of smoke and they were at home alone. I get a phone call and my youngest daughter was madder at the oldest daughter because the fact that she was at the wrong tree that was just like four (laughs) feet from each other. But they actually practiced, got out and called me and then we called 911 just because it was an an HVAC issue Mm -hmm. that filled the house with smoke. But, you know, we want to practice with our families. We want to practice with the parents. But I think a lot of people also forget the people that live alone. Just because you live alone does not mean you don't practice. Because I know when we pull up to a fire scene, if it's fully involved, our biggest thing is, is, was anyone home? So if you practice and you live alone, have them actually tell a neighbor, hey, if you don't see me at this tree, there's a good chance if my car's here that I'm in that house. So it's more than just practicing with parents, with kids. This goes for everyone. And I think we often forget the adults, Mm -hmm. even as we teach. Yes. And, you know, in looking at the community or the demographic that is retired, the retirement community, we are finding that a lot of those are shut-ins. And so you could reach out to your community through your senior centers, through Meals on Wheels, and you can actually learn more about your community through those types of organizations and create an entire outreach program for individuals that may be shut in. Mm -hmm. We actually have begun to integrate a a Knox box, residential Knox box program, where we're actually going to the senior center, distributing information through programs that deal primarily with the retirement community, reaching out to HOAs so that they'll know that if you are shut in or you have a need in mobility that may prevent you from reaching safety, Mm -hmm. uh, that we would know more about that. And we would also have, even from a medical standpoint, a better way to access your home through that Knox box system, which is simply a box mounted on the door or the side of the door with a key to your house that the public safety has a specialized key to open and enter your home in the event of emergency. And in addition, um, as firefighters, how many times do we go pick Mrs. Jones up, but yet we don't discuss fire safety with her? I mean, if it's Mrs. Jones, especially if Mrs. Jones is a smoker, we don't discuss, hey, let's find a safe place for this or even checking their smoke alarms while they're in the house. If there's not a true emergency, and especially if you're not transporting, just say, hey, can I can I help with this? And when I worked for Forsyth County and we had a child with a disability and he was not able to get out of the home. So we actually, they actually had the resources. We brought in a contractor and they were able to actually make his bedroom better fire safe by giving it more insulation. They even put an exterior door to his. But then we also knew as firefighters that on the pre-plan, if there's a fire, here's how you get to this person. We are in a lot of these houses so frequently, but yet we're not always paying attention to the fire side, if, especially if it's a medical call. So, so you're saying kind of pay attention, pay attention even when you're on that medical use call. Use that as an educational opportunity. Even if every time you're in there, you just talk about one more little thing. Right. It still helps. Exactly. It helps. 
With that Knox box, is that correct? Yes. That that you're talking about, how would the citizen know about it? The firefighters are telling them, or is there a way that they could do it themselves? Um, you can actually reach out to your local fire department. I would speak to the fire marshal in the area that you live, and they can provide information for those systems. Okay. Um, absolutely. And then if you want to be proactive as a fire organization in a community, you could actually take that information to the different organizations like we spoke about earlier, the Senior Center, Mills, and different organizations throughout your community and give them information for those types of systems that can be easily installed. I mean, they have a system that literally just hangs over the door. Another great thing that you can actually do is train some home health folks. Yes. Because we're not going into every single home, but yet home health goes in to actually help them. So if you train them in just some basic, we use the Remembering When program through NFPA, but use some basic fire safety and even fall safety, and the nurses and that can actually, whenever they go in or even the caregivers go in, they can review one or two of those things with them. And if they need a smoke alarm and they need something like that, then they can contact the fire department from there. You're not doing a whole lot more work. It makes it easier. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you're making your community safer at the same time. So, you know, as you're integrating all these different programs that are available in just about every community across the United States, you're becoming more proactive. You're not just making the citizens of that community safer, but you're also in turn helping to make the firefighters in that community and the police officers and anyone else responding, EMS, safer as well. Because uh, in today's climate, we realize the twin killers are out there, you know, right. hydrogen cyanide, carbon monoxide. And the more exposure you have to these toxic substances, the more likely you are to develop cancer. And there's a whole topic that goes around that. So you're making everyone that's involved in the community, from the personnel, you know, all the way down to the homeowner, the children, everybody becomes safe. A lot of people think that, you know, this is so much more work for the fire department, but really you're creating less work. You're creating less work by training others that have your same mission with the correct information instead of them giving out poor information too. And then it's also, I noticed you were saying it's helping with firefighter safety. Mm -hmm. You arrived at a home and it was fully involved. What are your procedure for that? We would normally go defensive. If we know that someone's in there, that changes the whole perspective of the fire. If it is fully involved when we get there and usually it's a defensive attack, but there is a total different mindset if we think that someone is inside of it. But it's very dangerous. It right? is extremely yes. dangerous. Because it makes it that much dangerous for you. And and even whenever it's not fully involved, even a couple rooms sometimes is worse because the structure itself is weakened. Then we put the water in there and it weakens it even more. Right. So sometimes the ones that aren't fully involved are you know, more safe than the ones that we're going inside and actually doing interior and fighting. Okay. Especially mm-hmm. if search and rescue is involved. Mm-hmm. And we have no idea where people may be in the household. Mm-hmm. And so that goes right back to once you're out, you stay out. Mm-hmm. Because we arrive on scene. If there is no one outside, we, uh, we, we, we do not pre-plan individual houses. Mm-hmm. We pre-plan commercial structures. So we arrive on scene. There's no one there. And like Laura said, uh, it changes the dynamics of being on that scene. If someone says, well, there's people in the household. Mm-hmm then we could end up having to search an entire house, which puts everyone at risk. We also mentioned already that fire's fast. It can double in size every 30 seconds Mm -hmm. and with the right fire load as fast as every seven seconds. So flashovers being reached in seven minutes, you ask, you know, when we arrive on scene, well, by the time the call's made, the tones are dropped, and we get, you know, we get out to the scene seven, eight, 
maybe nine minutes could have passed in between everything occurring. And that's not even taking into account the distance there, right? Approximately five minutes. Approximately five minutes is a a response time once you're rolling out of the bay at the fire station. Mm -hmm. We arrive on scene. There was one person outside. They got worried. Why isn't everyone else out? And then they went back in. And then they went back in. Now there's nobody. Now we're there. We know people are inside. We don't know how many, maybe. We don't know where they're at, if they've moved. But if there's someone outside and they're like, oh, well, so-and-so is supposed to be in this room the last time I seen them. We can do vent and search and we can enter the structure in that room. So if we're able to find them in that room and if they had a plan and they discussed the plan and they acted on the plan, oh, I can't get out of my room, so I closed the door, then the survivability for that person is much greater Mm -hmm. because that door will become a heat and a smoke barrier. And if we continue to educate people about closing the door and especially about not going around breaking windows on structures because they think, oh, you know, we can help find the person. But we want to create that area that's that the oxygen is not pulling into the fire. So that's why closing the door keeps that as a barrier along with keeping the window shut unless you know that you can get out that window. Right. And we had teaching people, because Laura just brought this up, we've had a structure fire here recently in our community where there were two fatalities. The neighbors thought they were helping because they could hear the people screaming for help. So they began busting the windows out Mm -hmm. of the house, which supplied an enormous amount of oxygen Mm -hmm. to the fire. And fire is three things. It's heat, fuel, and oxygen. And it actually caused the situation to become much more grim at that point. So educating them. Also, that being said, this was a cooking-related fire, and the fire began because it was unattended cooking. Cooking is actually the number one cause of kitchen fires, the unattended cooking. Usually, the cooking fires do not have a fatality involved. A lot more times, it's more of an injury Mm -hmm. when it comes to cooking fires, because people see it. They're usually awake unless they had fallen asleep. Mm -hmm. And then when it's unattended, it gets worse because they don't know what's happening. Exactly. And then if they haven't received any level of education, it is natural for them to go and want to put water on their grease fire. So how do you tell them as a firefighter, how do you go out and educate them to do something different? Well, actually, when we're out educating the public to things like kitchen fires, if it's in the oven, don't open the oven door and go, I think there's a fire in the oven, right? You'd because be then it jumps out of, the fire, out of the oven onto you maybe or spreads. So leave it closed, turn the oven off. You begin removing the heat, and it begins consuming the oxygen that is in the oven. The oven is a box designed to hold a lot of heat. The next thing is if it's on top of the stove, do not grab the pot and try to run to the yard with it. That is a common practice. You spread the fire from the pot. Or run to the sink with it and catch the curtains on fire. Or run to the sink. Yeah, exactly, Laura. Run to the sink and catch the curtains on fire. Because you put it in the sink, and then you try to put water on it, and it flashes up. And So cook with a lid or an item that fits the size of the pot close at hand. Also cook with like a oven mitt or something that you could actually pick and or slide the pot off of the eye that it's on if it was to catch on fire. And when you put the lid on, make sure that you're sliding the lid over it from the side. You don't want to go straight down or the flames could come up on the side. And a lot of people, you get all kinds of answers. What do you put on a, a grease fire? You get you know, salt, you get baking powder, baking soda, all these things. But a lot of people keep those things above the stove. So in doing that, you're putting yourself in harm's way. But a lid is very accessible and can be right beside you. And never, ever cook with long sleeves or even robes. 
So a lot of people in the morning will get up and begin to cook breakfast and they'll have their robe on and they'll be cooking because those items, and I actually performed a home safety survey a few weeks ago with a woman that as a teenager was cooking with a friend of hers and it caught fire and it was in the morning and she had long sleeves like off of a gown Mm -hmm. and it set fire. She still has the scars that resulted from that fire. She said that she learned a very hard lesson that day. Oh, I'm sure. And the fatalities that are normally attached to cooking fires is because they had fallen asleep. Mm-hmm. And they did not realize what was happening. I believe that was one that they had as well. So, so the biggest recommendation is just to make sure that you're watching and paying attention during cooking. Stand by your pan. When... I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so when you go out into the community, are there events you have where you educate citizens? Or the only time you have the chance to do that is when you're going door to door, maybe when you're making a medical call? No, we actually schedule events where we go out into the community. We uh, attend H- homeowners association meetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, we attend schools, parent academies at the schools, parent academies at daycares. We go to the senior centers and uh, several times a year and speak to them about fire safety based on topics that are relevant to the time of the year. You know, right now we're moving into Thanksgiving. People will start using deep fryers and things of that nature. They'll begin because it's cooling. We'll begin moving into the cooling months. They'll start using alternative heating methods. I mean, as fire service personnel, don't forget the biggest one that we have. When you're grocery shopping and someone just comes up to you, just say, hey, listen, do you know what to do in this? Or have you checked your smoke alarms? So many times they come up and the kids just want to see the engine. That's great. But then add that education piece in there. We say to use an use it as an educational opportunity every single opportunity that you have. So make it fun for the make kids. Make it fun, but, but just kind of throw something in there as well, and just say, "Hey, listen, have you guys done this? Have you do you have your home escape plan? You know that helps us out the most, along with making sure that your numbers are clearly marked, especially because I'm in a more rural area. For goodness sakes, I mean the biggest thing is is so many times people come to us for the ooh crowd, and we love showing off the engine, or usually we sh- make the rookie do it, but. <laughs> But with that, use that as an educational opportunity. And it takes just a second just to say, hey, listen, did you guys check this or have you done this? Mm-hmm. And know your community also. Know the weaknesses of your community. Know the strengths of your community. And the only way to do that is to get out and be in the public and to share information, but also have people share information with you. Because, hey, my neighbor, no one ever visits them. Mm-hmm. I know that, you know, they're elderly. And I've never seen anybody pull into the driveway over there. I check on them every once in a while. You know, I notice that they're collecting a lot of stuff. They've got tons of magazines and newspapers piled in their house, things like that. And then you could say, well, you know, the next time you talk to your neighbor, as Laura's pointed out multiple times at this point, be a little proactive and say, hey, I'd like to invite the fire department over with me one day. Just talk about some things that might make your household safer. But the only way you're going to get information is by being accessible. And not only that, but I think the fire service as a whole, we are a very responsive organization. So everything that happens, we respond to it. You know, we did a good job. We did a good job. We did a lot of studies, especially with Merseyside, England. And one of the biggest things that he said um, in the very beginning of part of it is, Whenever you're a rookie, you get stuck at the busy station and everyone thinks, oh, you're just going to be running all these calls. It's a busy station. But why is it a busy station? It's a busy station because that's a community that's in trouble. So to actually get out there and start looking at the stuff and find out what's going on in the community and be more proactive versus reactive. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're always going to have fires. But the thing is, is with those incidents, 
you know, can we really pat ourselves on the back if there's something that we could have done in the beginning to actually prevent it? Most especially if there's a fatality involved. Mm -hmm. Yes. What could we have done? With these home fire escape plans that you're talking about, have you seen statistic-wise that people are more likely, that it's less likely to have a fatality if they follow those? Absolutely. Absolutely. Even with the smoke alarms, I do know that in um, 2016 for Georgia, we had 154 fatalities. Of those 154 fires, only six of those fatalities had a working smoke alarm in there. I'll give you a great story along that line. Our firefighters went out a few years ago and installed some smoke alarms in this individual's home. He worked the third shift, and he came home, and he was extremely tired. He actually began to cook. Mm -hmm. And I think Laura actually alluded to this earlier. Went and sat down in his room, you know, to change out of his work clothing and fell asleep. He was so sound asleep that the alarms going, and the firefighters reported that every smoke alarm in the house had been activated. A neighbor walking their dog heard, heard the smoke alarms and called 911, and that is why that individual was safe. Because wow. when the fire engines arrived, the kitchen was actually, as we would call, rolling. And having the working smoke alarm as part of that fire escape plan, a home escape plan that you have. And the biggest thing is just knowing and practicing because knowing what abilities everyone has and if when they hear it, what to do and what their options are. Just that in itself gives so much more because we've had so many times where kids are afraid and if they're afraid, they're not going to go out there. Right. They're not going to go to the window. So with that, actually more normalizing it for them. So with those home escape plans, having them check the smoke alarms, talking about cooking safety and even heating safety as we get into the cooler months. Yeah, mm-hmm. teaching your children that, you know, around any object that produces heat or flames, stoves, space heaters, candles, there's a three-foot no-play zone. Mm-hmm. It's a safety zone. Are there any Georgia laws that regulate smoke alarms in homes? Yes, there are Georgia laws that regulate smoke alarms in homes. One of those would be if you're a landlord. If you're a, a landlord, you're actually required by law to have a working smoke alarm in that house to the end date, but it's then the tenant's responsibility to keep that smoke alarm current and change the batteries in it. And about how often do you recommend changing those batteries? According to NFPA, you want to change them at least once yearly or per the manufacturer's instructions because there are the sealed 10-year units out there now and you're testing them monthly and then from there you're changing the entire unit whenever they expire. So So a good way to remember is to get batteries for your birthday to put in your smoke alarms. What better thing can a loved one buy you than batteries for your smoke alarm on your birthday? And a lot of departments say, you know, when you change your clocks, change your batteries. Mm -hmm. NFPA used to pretty much support that. They still say, hey, we can say that. But the biggest thing is it's no longer change them every six months. Mm -hmm. It's change them at least once a year for the ones that do not have the sealed units. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you're speaking to like the retirement community, they've gotten so used to hearing uh, when the time changes, change the batteries. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're just being more proactive. It's not, Mm -hmm. it's not like something that you're doing wrong. So it doesn't hurt it to change it every six months. Not, not at all. But a lot of people go, Oh, I changed them last six months. So I'm not going to do it again. So that's why a lot of, a lot of places don't do that. Actually, there's some places in England that actually have you do it. If you love your people, change your smoke alarm and they do it on valentine's day oh so there's a bunch of just different ideas to get out there that keep it where people remember to do it right and then after 10 years smoke alarms only last 10 years 
So after 10 years, you're going to change out the entire unit, Mm -hmm. which brings us to another subject, because a lot of times we'll go out to homes and we put up the battery only smoke alarms Mm -hmm. in the homes because, of course, we're not going to change the electrical system. Well, the other Georgia law was after 1994, you have to have interconnected systems with the interconnected systems. You, when one goes off, they all go off. Mm-hmm. You can't replace that with a battery only. If you take one down, it's going to drain the rest of them. But if you have to replace them, then you're going to really need an electrician unless you get one that can just click in, click out. If it's the same brand, they, some of them can still do that. So we've also got to watch as a fire service. You know, if we do a blitz, we want to find really the, the areas that are older than 1994. Okay. And code required those interconnected hardwired smoke alarms. That's why installing just a battery-only smoke alarm would actually go against the code that was required, the interconnected alarms. Mm-hmm. But that being said, there are companies out there that have developed wireless interconnected alarm systems that can actually even communicate with your phone and say, zone one, which may be a bedroom, the alarm has indicated that there may be a problem in that particular room or zone of the house. So obviously, trying to have an electrician come in and wire your pre-existing ceilings and walls with interconnected smoke alarms would not be cost effective. Right. But this new wireless systems that they've come out with that are UL tested will actually act as a system that is hardwired together. One goes off, it sets them all off. Or at least having one maybe in a place that didn't have one before, such as some people like to put them in like a garage or something now that didn't have them before because of the older code. Yeah, you got to watch out for dust and things like that. But at the same time, you have a little bit more heads up if something happens. If you go to an FPA and you're actually looking at where to install smoke alarms, they're going to recommend one in each bedroom, one in a hall outside the bedroom, not every bedroom, and then on in each common area on each level of the home. Including the basement. Including the basement. So, as Laura pointed out earlier, these smoke alarms have a life expectancy of around 10 years. Well, if you have a larger home, you could actually drop quite a bit of money in just replacing smoke alarms. And then if you add an element like a combination unit, which is a smoke alarm, carbon monoxide alarm combination, Mm -hmm. the price tag of that particular unit would go up because it's it's serving two purposes. So if you wanted to be proactive, and I've actually talked to people about this in larger homes, you could start replacing those maybe at year eight by one floor and date them, mark the date when they Mm -hmm. were installed, and then year nine buy some more. So you're not at the store buying $600, $700 worth of alarms. And if your department needs any more guidelines, other departments, we actually had guidelines that said, hey, we can't do anything that is greater than 12 feet high. Mm Because have you ever seen a recruit with a long ladder trying to get through a bunch of china? It it becomes very dangerous. Plus, most of us don't carry ladders that will go that high to be able to reach anything. So a lot of times, sometimes we do have to refer them back to an electrician if it's out of our scope to be able to help them, even though we try to assist them as much as possible, mm-hmm. even for battery changes or for changing out the whole alarm to begin with. Okay. What are some different types of smoke alarms that they have the option to choose from? Well, there's heat sensing alarms uh, that you would want to put more in line around the kitchen. Then you have alarms that sense smoke. It's more of a visual Type of alarm. The photoelectric do more yes. of the seeing the smoke particles, mm-hmm. where the ionization is more of a flaming fire. 
there will be some changes within the next couple of years that they are will have some that actually will be able to figure out if it's a nuisance alarm, especially in the kitchen, or if it's steam out of the bathroom instead of actually fire, and that'll be a new regulation. Some other neat things, you want to make sure that they are UL listed, but you can get the hard of hearing smoke alarms. Now, of course, if they have hearing aids during the day, a regular one, and I've even gotten a phone call before about, I've got a blind person who needs a smoke alarm. It's a regular smoke alarm. Right. So you would be surprised some of the phone calls we get. But the hard of hearing ones, especially if they take out their hearing aid at night, Mm -hmm. what it does is it hears a T3 alarm, which is a normal smoke alarm that goes beep, 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 Mm -hmm. pause, beep, beep, beep. You hear has a series of two to three times that that goes off and it will vibrate the bed. There's a vibrating piece and they can also double as an alarm clock normally, but it vibrates the bed and it will shake anything that they have loose Mm -hmm. and it will shake it. But they wake up to it and it will say fire, fire, huego, huego, and flash orange to alert them to get out of the house. Mm -hmm. Now, another thing that we had done for those that could not hear during the day, such as they had that maybe a cochlear that didn't work or they had an issue, you can actually get a, we use the Gentex ones that you could plug into the wall and hang up. And it was a, it was a T3 beep, 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 pause, beep, beep, beep. And it would flash the strobe as an alert. But we didn't make any electrical changes to that home. So they worked in conjunction. The other good thing is if they say they went on vacation somewhere, they could take those with them to wherever location they were going. You just have to watch because some apartment complexes have that long type sound. And with that, they won't work with that. It would send smoke with the the Gentex, but it won't with the... So what would be your recommendation for someone who's hard of hearing that may live in an apartment complex like that? For them actually getting a regular T3 type alarm inside the apartment, Mm -hmm. it won't be interconnected with the other, but also planning around your abilities. So if they know that they have a a hearing issue, have a neighbor who's going to maybe have either have a key or like he was talking about Knoxbox. So that way that they actually have information to Mm -hmm. be able to. Ahead of time. Right. Ahead of time. And the staff even would know, hey, listen, she probably is still in there because she can't hear it anyway. And another thing you can do also if you have a special need is you can actually request your uh, 911 center to make a notation mm-hmm. of what that is so that when tones drop to the fire station that would be responding or stations, that information will become a part of the narrative that they're receiving. So if you have, you know, a mother or uncle or someone in your family that may be bedridden or wheelchair bound or on supplied oxygen or autistic because there's different levels of autism, Making those notes and having them enter that information into the CAD system could mean a world of difference, not just to the person that is experiencing the emergency, but also the first responders. The firefighters can actually call the 911 center and uh, have them record that information into the CAD system. Yes. So it'll pop up in any call because even though your station may have been responding, you could have already been out on another call whenever that comes in, right. or it could be a different shift. And the big thing, too, and you know, this seems to be a topic, see something, say something. So if you're a firefighter, engine crew going out to a household to perform a home safety survey or check smoke alarms, you may be having an active event going on in your community for a blitz or whatnot. If you're entering someone's home and you see a lot of hazards, at least at a minimum, make the department that would be first in aware of what those hazards may be like hoarding or for something like that. Yeah, for everybody's safety. I mean, I'd like to talk about, you know, FireWise was mentioned uh, mm-hmm. through making your home safer through 
proper planning and landscaping around the household. Not just that, though, but I'm sure Laura, every firefighter has been to households where people are improperly storing in their garages and even under the deck and against the house fuels. So, and that would be part of your firewise landscape plan to help your home, I guess, not be as susceptible to mm-hmm. fires or to help prevent fires in and around your property. So, as the firefighter, you would just let them know, hey, you know, this is here and it's going to make it worse? Yes, uh, storing fuels properly, I've seen throughout our particular community, uh, seems to be a challenge. And sometimes it's in the proper canister, but then it's not actually sealed correctly. There's there's nothing to keep the vapors from the gas, I guess you would say, escaping. And so, or even grills right up against the house. Yes. It's actually a huge one, too. Cooking, once again, because we're going into holiday mode. Mm-hmm. People deep frying their turkeys in their garage or on the back porch that's covered. I've seen them in their kitchen. Yes. I've actually been in a household where, yes, they were... It wasn't just a deep fryer for the turkey. I think they cooked most of what they ate in this particular deep fryer inside the household. And a lot of that is cultural Mm -hmm. because especially if they grew up in an area that it was more of Mm hut-like where there was good ventilation, that wasn't an issue. In a closed-off apartment complex, that's an issue. Right. But they don't know any better because that's the way that they were always taught. Mm -hmm. Or a single wide trailer can be a huge issue. Yeah. Another big thing this month, especially, that a lot of fire departments do is they do open houses. They do open houses for Fire Prevention Week or Fire Prevention Month. That is a great time to actually let the community into the fire service and into their fire departments. Adults are so interested Mm -hmm. and so intrigued by the fire service itself. But a lot of people are afraid, unless they need a blood pressure check, to walk in our fire departments. With that... Of course, you know, we're keeping safety in mind, but also make it fun for them. Give them the information. I mean, sometimes you probably even want to stick someone in the kitchen to explain the kitchen because some taxpayers get a little upset when they see three fridges because C-Shift eats all of C-Shift's food. (laughs) So we have three fridges, but once they understand that it's pretty much three different families living there, it becomes a little bit different. So kind of think about some of the things that they may see and kind of ward off some questions. But it's a great time to actually get the community involved in your department and have fun stuff, especially for the kids to do there. So when you're at your department, do you ever have little Cub Scouts or anybody stop by? And how do you show them around the fire department and also educate them about what they should do? There are actually all kinds of resources. We actually have a great resource on georgiafire.org. We actually have a the Georgia Unified Community Risk Reduction Guide. And in that, it actually has some age-appropriate messages. There's just lesson plans, especially if you get like a seven and eight-year-olds in there. You can go through the six through eight and just have basic information. I would say try to talk to them and try to actually do that part before you go and show them the engine because once you hit the engine, they're like, ooh, oh, look, it's a ladder. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, so many times we have station tours, and I know especially the month of October, everyone is covered up with station tours. But with that, don't forget the adults. Those adults are the taxpayers. So a lot of times you get the little mom groups in the side that are just like whispering and talking and gossiping among themselves. Get them involved. They are just as interested. But a lot of times they think that's a free for all time. Don't make it be. And a lot of times, too, you end up talking about things at the station level that the parents never even thought about. It gives you an opportunity because there's a kitchen. There's bedrooms. There's all these things. It gives you opportunity. There's smoke alarms. Mm -hmm carbon monoxide alarms. It gives you an opportunity to talk about each one of those things, kitchen safety in the kitchen, Mm -hmm. you know, two ways out because we do sleep there, Mm -hmm. you know, get low and go. 
And like Laura said, you know, go through some of those educational moments with the entire family being there Mm -hmm. and have some information available to them to take away before you go looking at the, you know, the BRTs, the big red trucks. (laughs) Because once you get out to that level, uh, Mm -hmm. you pretty much lose the kids from there for their, they become just, and a lot of the adults also, so. And you can even throw in sometimes, especially with adults around, throw in the cost of something, throw in what their money has actually paid for. I mean, we actually do, we've gotten into the schools a lot when it comes to actually getting taxpayer support. But at the same time, when's the last time we've actually gone to the school and talked to them about what their parents' money pays for? If we start doing that as like second grade, fifth grade, into high school, when they become taxpayers, then they'll understand. They'll be educated on what that is. And I think we'd have a whole lot easier time. We've kind of done it to ourselves by not educating them early on of what their government funds pay for. So be involved. I mean, even on some of the slighter things that you think, oh, this isn't a big thing. Kids don't want to know about this. It's actually in their curriculum of government and funding. Yeah, they don't understand that a fire engine, you know, the price tag without any equipment on it, Starts at around 500000 and then goes up from there. So, you know, based on the type of fire engine that you're purchasing, especially when they have their family and all of these people there, mm-hmm. it is a prime opportunity to educate them on so many levels at the station. And on this website that you were talking about, do you recommend going ahead and printing those resources off and looking them over and kind of already knowing them? Or can you hang them? What do you, you do with You them? can print off. It's about a 147-page guide, and it actually covers every single week of the year. So mm-hmm. there's 52 different messages with it as well. But it is in PDF form, so it's searchable. So if someone says, hey, I need to talk about smoke alarms, they can go to that section, and it comes directly from NFPA, the U.S. Fire Administration. So mm-hmm. it's quality information, not from, you know, Joe's smoke alarm website. <laughs> right. That's right. That, w- that we have a lot of issues with. There's even a curriculum guide on there of how to get into the schools mm-hmm. that goes along with the class that we've been teaching, the eight-hour basic community risk reduction classes through the academy. There's even, like I said, the station guide. There's even how to set up a smoke alarm blitz on there. There's everything mm-hmm. in that book. There's also PSAs on that website. And even on the website has the, the video from Turn Your Attention to Fire Prevention. Mm-hmm. And it also has has what the current fire fatalities are all the way back to 2011. You can see it by county on a map. So it's a great resource, and that's the georgiafire.org website. Great. Thank you for that resource. And, you know, with that guide as a proactive fire chief, you could put that guide in each of the stations in your community. And those weeks that Laura just spoke of actually can become coffee table sessions. Uh, and training. it becomes a very teachable moment and training for new recruits and sometimes even seasoned veterans. They may not know all of that information because they're so busy learning, you know, and trying to keep up with all the hours and training that they have to have for just the fireside itself. So we're not only educating other people, we want to educate ourselves too. We have to educate ourselves first. We have to educate ourselves first, and then we can educate other people. Are there any other resources you can think of that firefighters could use to educate their communities? NFPA.org has a great website, and almost all their materials on there are free now. Um, You can print stuff off if you want to order some. You still can. But it's not like it used to be where, you know, you look at it and you had to pay for it. So it's actually a great website. They even have Sparky for Kids on there. They've got whole toolkits. They've got... Dan Doofus. I love Dan Doofus. <laughs> They've got all kinds of different resources. And, and then you have safekids.org. I had to beat Laura to the punch. 
So yes, I also work for Safe Kids. But <laughs> safekidsgeorgia.org, you can find your local coalition. We also have a lot of resources on there and Safe Kids Worldwide as well. Great. And FEMA as and well. U.S. Fire Administration. Yes. You, if you get early enough in there, you can usually even order Sesame Street coloring books, things like that. A lot of people spend money on coloring books. They spend money on activity books. But really and honestly, make a one sheet type thing. Mm-hmm. Make sure it has the correct messaging. And on the back, just put information. It's cheaper and because really and honestly, I don't know of any child that has gone through and colored every single page of the activity book. <laughs> right. But yet we spend all this money constantly on this stuff. And uh, Vision 2020 actually has Strategic templates. Strategic fire. Yes. They have templates you can go in and load your company logos into. And it's very good, straightforward, one sheet, like Laura just pointed out, information mm-hmm. that can be easily printed at that point. And it's saved on that website. So you just go log in. I need this sheet again. And you print some more off. And that's strategicfire.org. Do you also use social media more for the adults? That way you can get it to them because I know they don't want to color on a coloring sheet to get their message. Yes. Actually, I manage social media for our department. Mm-hmm. We use Facebook because it is an adult, more oriented type of social media right. platform. And Twitter, which seems to be fairly popular at this point. We have actually created bullet points for social media, and I believe that we're in the process of trying to get those loaded as a resource page or on the resource page for georgiafire.org. So it would be literally as easy for any department that chooses to have a a social media platform to push messaging through to cut and paste and just put their information as, you know, like their logos, rockers or whatnot on that social media platform. And it's instantaneous to reach your adult populations. And if you look on Facebook, you can look up the group, spell out Georgia, but Georgia Public Safety Educators Association, we actually have a Facebook group that you can actually get a ton of information. We put it out there and then you can share it on your own page. We don't care. We're just trying to get the information out. Great. Streamline all of it. Yeah. We're building toolboxes that are user friendly. And that or you're not holding to yourselves. You're willing to share them because you want with yes. anyone. And actually Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, they've all started to pick it up. It especially great. with the turn your yeah. attention to fire prevention and they're following suit. Wow. That's awesome. Well, I just want to thank you both for coming in today and talking to us and getting us a little bit more prepared for this fire prevention month. We really appreciate you having us. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Gypstick Between the Lines. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. If you'd like to reach out, email us at learn at gpstc.org.